Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that your grace is sufficient for us and, Lord, uh, for um, using uh, St. Paul and, and others in the life of your church uh, to draw people to faith in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're in Acts chapter 17, um, verses 22 through 32. Paul is still in Athens, and he has uh, been sort of dragged all over the place from the marketplace now up to the Areopagus, and uh, he's there in a sort of trial-type setting uh, to talk about uh, the Lord Jesus. So let's, uh, this is the sermon that he gives uh, there in Athens, and starting with verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us, for in Him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are, all, we are indeed His offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent, because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed, and of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. The Word of the Lord. <clears throat> uh, maybe the preacher's worst nightmare to be interrupted uh, when you're not even done your sermon, uh, but Paul seems to be content to, to leave it uh, where it is uh, because he's really on a roll uh, in this sermon. He's... Uh, he's not even gotten up to the point. What's one of the things that you notice about this sermon? There's a, a glaring uh, omission of a certain name. Right. He never mentions Jesus by name. He only gets to describe him by saying, here's the one who is, there's going to be a day of judgment and there's one uh, appointed to judge and God raised him from the dead. And before he can even get to his name, the Athenians say, <clears throat> Some start to mock, and then others say, we will hear you again about this. Um, because, of course, they're all very intellectual, and they want to talk it out. And that's, uh, that is uh, all well and good. Uh, and so Paul ends up going off and finishing what he's saying, and some people believe, uh, but others uh, really uh, don't have uh, anything uh, to do with it. And then uh, we're going to talk about what happens uh, when he goes over to Eph Ephesus when his preaching gets very specific and the implications of what he's preaching here in Athens are actually uh, lived out. Well, Paul uh, is in Athens, which uh, is a very religious place. Why is it religious? It looks religious, right? Right, because it's, 
Right, it's sort of like Charleston. It's the city of churches, right? People call Charleston the holy city. Why? Because there are churches everywhere. In fact, in Charleston, if you want to find an Anglican congregation, throw a rock and you'll hit one. Uh, they're all pretty, pretty much stacked up uh, there, especially in the peninsula. Uh, but uh, it's a place where there are a whole lot of temples and uh, a lot of temple activity and worship going on. And they're so religious uh, that they make sure that they don't want to leave out any god in, the, in case they offend somebody. And so what do they build? An entire temple dedicated to the unknown god. Right, I, I mean, I don't know what prayer ministry is like there. We pray to you, whoever you are, uh, wherever you may be, uh, <clears throat> but we just want you to know that you might be there. Um, I know it's, it's just so bizarre and so strange but it turns out that even though the Athenians were outwardly religious, uh, their idea of religion, uh, which would be considered uh, really right living and, and virtue, and there's nothing wrong with those in and of themselves, but if that's the essence of your religion, uh, that's not much of a religion uh, at all. They certainly were spiritual in the sense that they thought that they were gods and that they were around, and most people believed that they intervened from time to time in people's lives. Uh, but these gods were fickle, and they had to be appeased. And so uh, you just kind of did the best that you could do, and you hope that things uh, worked out for you uh, in this life, uh, because in the age to come, everybody else, everyone went to the same place. And so really, if you want to be remembered, you had to make a mark uh, in the life that you live then and now. And in our culture, it's really not all that different from the Greek culture. Uh, even though we don't have uh, up in our neighborhoods uh, <clears throat> temples to unknown gods, uh, they uh, are still uh, there. You know, there's a big debate in the world right now over whether or not the world is getting more secular or whether it's getting more religious. Uh, a lot of scholars would say that the world is becoming more and more secular and hostile uh, to religion. Uh, but there are others like Peter Berger at Boston University who say that's actually not the case. Uh, the world is getting more secular where it was already pretty secular, uh, but where it's been religious, it's getting more religious, and actually it's growing uh, in its influence and uh, ability uh, uh, to move in the world. <clears throat> we only have to look at... Um, uh, the growth of Islam uh, in, in the world in, in which we live, uh, or even the growth of Christianity. Uh, and um, in just a couple years, uh, what will be the most Christian nation in the world? China. China will be the, 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 the biggest Christian nation uh, in the world, or most Christians, uh, more Christians will live there um, than any other country. Uh, so actually what we're seeing is a lot of people turning uh, toward religion. But even if you don't call it religion, secularism in, is in many ways uh, a religion unto itself. Right? It's got its own sort of code of beliefs and, uh, and thoughts and, and systems uh, and how uh, it works. And uh, I saw something funny the other day is, um, uh, how many of y'all know who Richard Dawkins is? Right, he's a scientist and he's a, he's a self-professed uh, atheistic evangelist where he's always going out and trying to debunk uh, any belief in God, and he's had debates with uh, Larry Taunton and other people like that. He's over in England. Uh, incidentally, he owns a house in Oxford that he rents only out to seminarians, uh, training for ministry in the Church of England. So he'll take your money, 
but I don't want to hear what you have to say. So, uh, but Dawkins, uh, somebody said that reading, if you look, he said, reading a theology, thinking that Dawkins knows what he's talking about theologically in any of his books is like somebody reading the British Guide to Birds and thinking they know biology, right? Uh, I thought that was funny. Uh, but uh, uh, so it's got its own uh, core sense uh, of belief, and even the people, uh, not just Richard Dawkins, uh, but it's funny to me how, uh, how often conversations, especially conversations uh, <clears throat> that tend to be intimate in the sense of vulnerability or you're struggling with something or dealing with something, and it turns to religion. A little thing that I used to do and don't do uh, on the airplane anymore because I'm too tired, but... I used to turn to my neighbor, and uh, after engaging them in a little bit of conversation, if I asked that they were a Christian, it would just shut it down. So that's a great way if you want to be left alone by your neighbor, <laughs> just to say, all right, do you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, or are you condemned to death? Try that one. And, um, uh, but if you ask, but if you ask them, uh, hey, do you have any spiritual beliefs? They won't shut up. Uh, I mean, I, I've never met anyone who doesn't want to talk about it. I mean, they will go on and on and on about what they believe spiritually. Why? Because we're spiritual beings, right? I mean, we're, uh, you know, we're not all seeking after God, but we all understand that there's a part of us that is missing. And so we're going to try to find anything uh, in order to fill it up. And people are very happy uh, to tell you what their temples to the unknown gods uh, are. And that's true of... The big demographic that's growing in the United States, the nuns, not the ones that wear the habits and look like penguins, uh, not the N-O-N-E-S, and those are folks who say, actually, they're not atheists. They just say, <clears throat> and many of them say they grew up in the church, but they say, I, I just don't know what religion holds for me. Uh, and a lot of them will say, I, I really like Jesus. Uh, I'm even willing to acknowledge that the Bible is the Word of God and that Jesus Christ has saved me but I'm just not into organized religion. I don't want to be a part of the church. You know, Sunday is the only day that I can get anything done around the house when I can sleep in. And so there's not really any point for me to go to church or to self-identify with any congregation. Now, Birmingham is one of the most churched cities in the world, and we just are. But I'm already starting to see it happen here in Birmingham. So, for instance, now, uh, and this is always funny, and Lauren and I always enjoy this when we go to a cocktail party, and we're sitting there talking to someone, and somehow the Advent comes up, and they say, oh, I go to the Advent. Where do you go to church? I'm like, we go to the Advent too. <laughs> and um, um, uh, right now in Birmingham, it's st in certain demographics, especially age brackets, to say that, you know what, I don't go anywhere because I really don't care anymore. Be I mean, you'll look at them, you know, what's wrong with you? Are you, uh, you know, what do you mean? So what we do is we lie. We say, I go to Advent, I go to IPC, I go wherever it is. Uh, but really, we don't, right? We, we, we don't do that. And that demographic is getting bigger and bigger. I mean, there's a guy who's a member here at the Advent, and I kid you not, he's probably asked me six or seven times, hey, do you want to play golf on Sunday at nine? It's like, well, I'm going to be busy uh, at nine, uh, but maybe I can do it another time. Just not... I mean, it's gotten to the point where uh, even the notion of going to church is novel. I mean, it's not, uh, it's, it's just, 
it's not even on the radar screen, and so there's not even any shame or guilt in asking your own pastor, hey, do you want to play golf on Sunday morning at 9 o'clock? Because why would you be busy? Well, uh, and that's why you find, uh, what I find very interesting is that in places where there's not a large population of Christians, like out west or Europe, places like that, how you find that they don't fight as much with one another, especially over moral issues. Like you go over to Europe or you go out to California and you ask the question, should Christians drink alcohol? They will laugh at you. They just don't engage in that conversation. Why? Because when you're a small beleaguered group, you don't turn in and and rally around one another, although there's some support there. Uh, But if you're going to church in a very secular place, that sets you apart in a way that is very disarming. And so in Alabama, when you say, hey, I go to church at the Advent, you know, nobody really says anything about it. Uh, but you say, you know, you're living in L.A., and you say, I, I go to church at whatever church you go to out there. Hollywood Presbyterian's a good one. Um, you, you know, people look at you sort of like, what? You, you go to church? Uh, So that's the world in which we live in, and Birmingham is becoming uh, more and more like that. But amongst the nuns, uh, when I first started reading about them, I thought that they were young, college-educated, sort of like when we had the Occupy Birmingham movement, uh, you can laugh, uh, in front of Regions Bank, uh, the Advent, we went over there and, and gave them coffee and engaged them in conversation, and, uh, and it turned out all of them were from Mountain Brook. And, uh, and so we started calling them the Trustafarians uh, uh, who, who were over there. And I just thought that they, like, when I think of the nuns, that's who I thought of. Uh, but do you know what demographic makes up the bulk of the nuns? Rural, blue-collar people. They, they just don't go to church anymore. Uh, they still, they're the ones who will say, do you believe the, the Bible is the Word of God? Yes. You go to church? No. You pray? Yeah, sometimes. Do you read your Bible? Occasionally, but not really. Uh, you know, those are the people that somehow along the way have been burned by the church, and the church has lost focus on what it's to be about. And so they've actually found spiritual fulfillment either nowhere or they're searching for it somewhere else. But it's funny, the Greeks here, that they hedge their bets and they build a temple to the unknown God. Now, we don't hedge our bets uh, in, in that way, although sometimes uh, we do. Uh, for Christians, uh, uh, Augustine said, um, what did Augustine say? I'll remember the quote in a minute, but basically... I mean, I have friends and family who become Christians, and I'll ask why, and they would say, uh, because I don't want to burn. You know, so Christianity for them is fire insurance, right, to be saved uh, from condemnation. Well, that is a very shallow view uh, of what Christianity is primarily about, uh, and that perpetuates the view that primarily Christianity is concerned with how you behave. And as long as, and those people will still say, well, yes, I, I said I wanted Jesus in my life, but I know that I also have to live a really good life, and so long as I live a good life, everything's going to be okay. Well, uh, the Bible obviously teaches something. uh, Well, not obvious to them, but the Bible teaches something wholly different. So we hedge our bets in that way. Uh, But 
how I feel like I hedge my bets is that uh, I'm obviously a Christian, at least I dress like one, uh, but then you might say, well, you get paid to dress like a Christian. That's true. Uh, but what I worry about is I want people to know me as a Christian, but in social settings, I want to make sure that I'm not ostracized because I'm a Christian. And so how many of us have not spoken up when we probably should have said something? Or we've uh, soft-pedaled something because we're afraid that we're going to, um, to offend someone. I finally had had it up to here with Sunday soccer. Uh, because not because I'm a Sabbatarian that I believe that you know we should all uh, take naps on Sunday although that's not a bad idea uh, but uh, I had it up to here on Sunday with Sunday soccer less because we were having soccer on Sundays which asked people to skip church in order to get their kids to soccer uh, but because there was a collective conspiracy amongst all the parents who were taking their kids to soccer where they normally would be in church and because they were all Christians and knew that they all were skipping church, somehow it made them feel better about it. That's actually what I had the hardest time with. And so, uh, but, uh, so normally I just kind of keep my mouth shut and, and don't uh, say much of anything. Uh, but Christianity in a, in a Christian culture like Birmingham, although it's growing more secular, I think that you know, we can say that we're still part of Christendom, what little bit is left makes your faith cultural. Uh, so it's just sort of like you're a Christian because you live in Birmingham. Or as one man in Beaufort told me, he said, I asked him why he was a Christian, and he said, because I was born in America. And I asked him what he meant. He said, well, if I was born in Pakistan, I would be a Muslim. Or if I was born in, you know, Southeast Asia, maybe I'd be Buddhist. And I understood what he was saying but he totally misses the whole understanding of the providence of God of actually seeking him out and saving him regardless. It's not just that God loves Americans more. I know that's not, it's July 4th weekend, so I can say that, right? Uh, but, uh, but this understanding that you're just a Christian simply because you were born into uh, a culture that is largely uh, Christian. And that's honestly one of the things that is going to make ministry in America really hard because the models of ministry that most mainline denominations have right now, not just the Episcopalians, but Presbyterians, Methodists, Lutherans, uh, is predicated upon a Christian culture. Uh, we're basically trained in seminary to be chaplains to people who are already Christian. And if there's any movement and growth in the church, it's because we're swapping sheep. Right? So we're transferring people in from uh, churches who are already Christian, and for one reason or another, uh, they've decided to, to join the Advent or leave the Advent uh, to go to another church. Uh, I fully expect the day will come where that will be a rare occurrence, that any growth that we see at the Advent will be through profession of faith, which would be great. And we already run into that, where we, we say, because our default is, where can we transfer your letter in from? What? What's a letter? Well, where do you belong? Well, I belong here, don't I? No, no, where, what, what church were you a member of? I've never been a member of a church. I mean, I think I got baptized at thus and such place, but I just kind of wandered around, and, uh, and, and here I am. Uh, that's going to be the reality, and is the reality, that we're growing into. And so, right now, our model of ministry is still based on uh, our ministry is for Christians, and we're going to try to snag you uh, if you're a Christian. 
Uh, but what about the people who are the nuns? What about the people who are unbelievers? Uh, how is it that we're getting the gospel to them? What's the vehicle? I mean, for most of us, it's let's bring them to church, which is, is great if, if you go to a good church, uh, but that can be very off-putting uh, as well. Uh, for instance, uh, in most Episcopal churches, uh, until we did our bulletin in one thing, uh, you had to wrangle three books uh, to get through the service. Now, uh, somebody, uh, I think I've told you all this, but it's worth repeating. Um, somebody came to me uh, to talk about the new bulletin format, which has been since January, and, uh, and they said that they didn't like it. And I said, well, why don't you like it? And they said, well, because when I first started coming to the Advent 20 years ago, I was totally lost, I couldn't follow the service, and it took me over 10 years to finally get to a place where I was comfortable and understood what was happening and could manage all the books. And now you've taken that away and made it easier for everybody else. I was like, you know, there's a word for that. It's called hazing. It's called hazing. Um, this person wanted, wanted us to, and so, but the thing about it is, is if you're, if you're distracted by making sure that you're on the right page, you're not going to hear anything, right? You're not going to hear the gospel. So you already get someone who may be on the fence about coming to church to get into the church, and they have an uncomfortable and bad experience. Chances are they're not coming back. They're not going to come back. I mean, I've talked to the vestry about this, even small ways in which we don't think. You know, William Temple, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury during um, World War II, said that the church is the only institution that exists for those who are not members. Lauren, can you do me a favor and get me a black cup of decaf coffee? Thank you. Living out our marriage vows. Um, <clears throat> but does that, does, I mean, does that actually manifest itself in the life of our ministry? So let's pick on the Advent for a minute. You're a newcomer. You've heard of the Advent. Maybe you're Christian. Maybe you're not. You get up in the morning, you know you got to drive downtown, you're not exactly sure where to park, you find some creepy parking deck, and you just fo you follow someone you hope is going to the Advent, uh, and you kind of walk a long way down the alleyway, and then you get to the steps on uh, 6th Avenue, I mean on 20th Street, and you go up the steps, and you try three doors, and they're all locked, and then finally the most obscure door, which is hiding behind a wall, you finally step into, and then you go into it, and, uh, and then you hit uh, the ushers, which is great, because then you have a service bulletin. But then you run into a whole wall of people dressed up in robes. And, uh, and you worked as hard as you could to get your kids there, but because we start our 9 o'clock service at 8.59 uh, for communion Sundays, all of a sudden the hymn starts, and one of the irreverent clergy, that's me, say, you know, just go ahead and sit down. And then the choir give them dirty looks when they're trying to get through. They're guaranteed to come back. Right? <laughs> hey, you know, it's just funny, the things we've never thought. Why wouldn't we open up those doors? I mean, we can fix that, right? I mean, if, if utilities is our biggest concern on this one, we can I love you so much. Um, uh, we, can, we can fix that, uh, but I mean, we should throw open the doors and be gracious and welcoming to people so that their initial experience when they come to the Advent ought to be one of joy and welcome and hey how's it going uh, i'm going to go ahead and admit this to you because i've been admitting it in private and three people can keep a secret if two are dead um but 
I was listening to the St. Thomas Choir of Men and Boys in the Debartelaben Passageway because I brought my girls with me, and the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. When one of them said, how much more Latin, I knew we were done for. So I put them out in the rector's garden where I could keep an ear out for the... You, know, you can tell the difference between screams, like that's an, that's an I'm angry scream, or I may have lost a limb scream, you know, like that. That's, so I was listening to them while they're out in the rector's garden, and I was sitting there listening to some amazing music. And I looked up, and there was a little brass plaque above the doorway that goes into the church, and it said, please be quiet, exclamation point. And I thought, that's the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my life. Uh, and so I ripped it down. I just took it down. I thought it was going to be really nice and nailed up there, but it was real cheap, so whoever had it made. Uh, but now why did I rip it down? It's the law, right? It's not only the law, it gives a terrible idea about what we gather to do on Sunday mornings, what our worship services are about. Now, I'm one of those, look, I'm totally old school. I like getting in the pew. I like kneeling to pray. Uh, but if somebody feels uncomfortable who's brand new and says good morning to you and you sort of shake your head like this, like you're not allowed to tell me that, or, or worse, we've had people get shushed, shh, uh, you're never coming back again. I mean, what are we, we're gathering as a family, right? We're a family coming together. Uh, and so, I, you know, people, like we shouldn't be rambunctious and we shouldn't be irreverent, uh, but at the same time, it is perfectly acceptable to engage in conversation with your brother and sister in the Lord Jesus Christ uh, and to share what he's doing in your life, or even just to say, good morning, right? Uh, God is not going to come down uh, with fire. In fact, I think Paul makes this point uh, because he says, look, God doesn't live in temples. He doesn't live in temples. Now, for the Greeks, this was kind of true uh, because they lived on Olympus, but when they do show up, they show up in temples mostly. Although, if you've ever read any Greek mythology, uh, they show up in all kinds of places uh, <clears throat> in the ancient world. Uh, but the Greek idea was that if God was anywhere, or there was a God anywhere, they were most supremely manifested in the temples, and they primarily spoke through the oracles and priests that worked in those temples. Now, this idea, uh, which also in, in Judaism, in the Old Testament, where did God live? Primarily. In the temple, right? He lived in the sanctuary, the Holy of Holies. Uh, that's where God's uh, Shekinah glory and presence dwelt. Now, of course, he wasn't confined to that uh, because there was a time when there was no temple, uh, and uh, he dwelt with them in the tabernacle and also manifested himself uh, and things like uh, the burning bush, or uh, even uh, in instances when you had uh, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, when they looked into the furnace, they put three in, but they saw four, right? So, uh, and I, I think that that's a manifestation of the Lord God Almighty. So, um, but those ideas have crept over into Christianity that has made us believe that God is more present in our church building than He is anywhere else. Now, sometimes this can manifest itself in physically dangerous ways. So in past Christian Mississippi, there's a beautiful Episcopal church called Trinity Church, and it has had to be built several times because it's so close to the Gulf of Mexico 
and because of hurricanes. And in the 1960s, Hurricane Camille was bearing down on the Gulf Coast, and so there were 50 people that thought, you know where we'll be safe? In a church. And they all died. Now, why did they think that? They thought surely uh, God would protect it, them because that is where God lived. But even in our own day and age, now you say, well, look, if there's a you know, hurricane, I'm, I'm not, not going to run to the church. Uh, but although we've got a pretty good hurricane building, this probably would be a good church to run to, uh, big stone walls. Uh, but uh, even in the way that we talk about our church, uh, makes uh, it would be uh, understandable if it made people think that that is where God lives. So what's a word that we throw around in America for a church building? Sanctuary, right? A sanctuary, right? We use temple language to describe things. So when you walk into the church, you've got the bit where y'all sit, which we often call the nave, and then what do we have? We have steps that go a little bit closer to holiness, right? And then you keep moving, and then we've got a rail, which, you know, that keep out. And, uh, and then uh, and once you're on the other side of the rail, uh, you are in the holiest of holies in the sanctuary. And, uh, you know, we use words like altar. And even in our church, we have an ombre, and we've got a, a sanctuary light that's supposed to denote the presence of the Lord. And it does, because we burn it all the time. Um, but it really came home to roost for me when I was talking to one of the sextons and we were, I don't know if y'all know this, it gets so hot sometimes that the lead in our stained glass windows will melt. Uh, so uh, good class action lawsuit there. But uh, we, uh, so, but there's always dust and stuff like that. So I was trying to show one of the sextons up in the window behind the rail. I was standing up on the bench and I was trying to show them where that needed to be cleaned. And they were like, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm like, no, I want you to get up here and I want you to see it. And they wouldn't do it. And I said, why won't you come up here? And he said, I've seen Indiana Jones. <laughs> like he really thought that it was going to be Raiders of the Lost Ark <clears throat> played out uh, before his eyes. What? Because that's the impression that he's been given. And I think we have a lovely and beautiful church. But do you see, if that's the impression being given that if we're preaching uh, the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ in a personal relationship with the Father through Him, in some ways I have to preach against the architecture. It's beautiful, it's beautiful, uh, but it's, you know, we use temple light. Now I'm not saying we, we, we get rid of all that stuff, uh, uh, far from it, although I thought it was very funny. When I was in Rwanda, we... Um, uh, the prayer book, uh, I don't know if you know this, but the 1662 prayer book uh, allows for candles for one reason alone. Illumination, right? You're not supposed to have them for decoration. Well, we do, and that's fine. Well, I, I kind of compare it to having candles on a dining room table or something like that, and that's fine. Uh, but when we were in Rwanda, uh, I noticed that none of the churches had candles. And so I asked the rector of one of the churches, uh, that had just been built. A man from Birmingham, a godly, faithful guy, had just built it and also helped pay for solar panels to be installed. And I said, well, why don't y'all have candles? He says, we used to, but then we got power. 
right? Because that was the point, right? They didn't see candles as, de- they didn't have the luxury to see them as decoration. They, it was helping to give, they, used, they actually used them so that they could read their Bibles. And now that they had lights uh, in their church, uh, they didn't need those things anymore. So as long as we keep those things in their right place, they're fine. But oftentimes, like the Athenians, uh, we try to confine God physically, and there's just no biblical warrant for that because He doesn't dwell in temples made by human hands. Uh, where does He dwell now? Right in us. Like, right where my. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Our sanctuary, Jesus Christ, is in heaven. Uh, and so all that to say, you know, the issues that St. Paul is dealing with here in, in Athens uh, are still, I think, uh, issues uh, that we deal with uh, today. And uh, somebody was once challenging me on this because they said that God was more present in the Advent building than, he is, than He's not. And I said... That's not true. And they said, no, it is true. He's there more than he is, say, in my home. And I said, all right, here's a little challenge for you. I said, I want you to go in the building, and I want you to pray, and I want you to gauge how you've encountered the Lord Jesus there. And then I want you to go out into the middle of 6th Avenue with your eyes shut and start praying to the Lord, because I'm pretty sure you're going to meet him soon. You'll you'll experience God's presence very fast uh, doing that. Uh, because God is, is not confined uh, to a building, nor is he served by human hands. Uh, there was a terrible thing uh, said in the church. I don't know who said it, but it's been perpetuated, and it's on T-shirts and things like that, uh, that we are God's hands and feet. And so if we don't do God's work, it doesn't get done. Uh, well, that means that God is not all-powerful. Uh, if he's wholly reliant upon us to do his work, Uh, then we are in big, big trouble. Now, God does in His mercy use us. Absolutely, He uses us. And uh, and that is a real gift and and a wonderful grace uh, that He's given us uh, to share His gospel. Uh, But I don't think that He's sitting up in heaven uh, biting His nails, thinking, you know, well, if Andrew doesn't do it, then what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Because this was the whole plan, and He's blown it uh, because he He decided not... to do it. But in fact, we know that God is sovereign and he will use any means necessary to get his word out, even if it means using Balaam's donkey. Great, great story uh, from the Old Testament uh, where uh, a donkey uh, spoke the word of the Lord. Uh, And even Jesus said, if you keep silent, the rocks will cry out. Uh, I can can make children of Abraham out of these rocks. And so God has the ability to do it, but we should be grateful that he does uh, use us. Moving on, uh, I think I'm going to get cut off, but uh, just as an aside, as a footnote, but I think it is uh, worth noting, uh, verse 25 ought to be a wonderful, and 26 ought to be a wonderful encouragement to you this election year. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God. Uh, You know, it's amazing to me uh, when you read the scope uh, of the Bible and when it seemed like things were just absolutely terrible. Uh, There was a restaurant marquee recently that said, if Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton were stranded at sea in a lifeboat, who would survive? America. America would survive. (laughs) 
I thought that was I thought that was good. Right. So you can use that. You can use that. So uh, it's not a fatalist, but the fact that God is in control. So if you take a look at the Old Testament, just start in Judges, uh, where they had no king, and then all of a sudden the Israelites, after going through the judges, say, "We want a king," uh, which sounds a whole lot worse than it actually is, uh, or it's, it is worse than it sounds, because what they were saying is, we don't want God to be our king. We want a human, earthly king. <clears throat> and then the kings and all the characters that were in there that were sorted, to say the least, uh, where it probably seemed, where's God? Where is God in all of this? And yet, looking back in the grand scheme of things, those are blips. Now, for better or for worse, many of us have been destined to live uh, through those times. Uh, but we see here in Acts 17 that God is in control, and He is the one that allots periods. He's the one that creates boundaries of the dwelling place, and no one else but Him. Well, I could keep going on and on. We're at verse 27, and I was actually going to get some really good news. Uh, but uh, let's leave it there and ask if there are any questions. Uh, yeah, and looking at the, the last uh, verse that you read uh, here uh, in uh, verse 26, mm-hmm. uh, where it says, the, having determined a lot of periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God. Mm-hmm. Well, I was thinking about the uh, Augustine quote, that my heart is restless until I find my rest right. in thee. Yeah, it's, if you keep reading in verse 27, um, it actually, it's not a great translation. It says, in the hope that they might feel their way toward him. Uh, but actually, what the Greek says, let me look at the word, uh, what the Greek says is that, that they should be drawn to seek God, that God would actually capture their hearts and pull them into relationship. Just a little confession, as you referenced Sally Lloyd-Jones and, and her immediate reaction to speaking falsehood, I guess you'd say, during your sermon I was thinking, well, I wonder how successful Judas was when he went out in, in the same vein. Of, as yeah, soon he was. As, I, as soon as I thought that, I'm going, like, well, it wasn't Judas's success. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a giant can of worms, and uh, the, uh, the, the tough question alarm has gone off. And uh, No, but Judas is a... Um, yeah, Judas, it, I mean, it's, I mean, what Jesus said about it may be the most pastoral thing that you could say about it, and it probably had been better had he not even been born. That's a hard word, uh, but uh, that's, that brings up a whole host of issues that I'm more than happy to get into um, in another setting. Okay, Athenians, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. <laughs>